We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Key, it is finally October. It is October, and I know this is the month where you thrive and you feel alive. Exactly. I'm the most me as can be during the month of October. Right. And for multiple reasons. One, because this is your birthday month. Correct. And two, because you just love Halloween. I do. It's always been a part of my days, it seems. Yes. So, we are going to have... Halloween themed tales this whole month as a tribute to our this is our first October, is it? Yeah, because I believe we started in November. November, yeah. So, as a tribute to our first October we're going to have Halloween themed tales this whole month. Well, we shouldn't talk about Halloween then. We shouldn't talk about Halloween, especially since it's going to be kind of a drag with the kids not possibly not being able to go like door to door and get candy and stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. But I mean, the kids are already wearing masks. So what's going on with that? But some masks are like just little eye shields, like, you know, if they're Captain America or something like that. Yeah, or you could wear, like, you know, your regular everyday safety mask and then just face paint the eye area. And just say a really muffled trick-or-treat in every door you go to. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of sad. I was, you know, hoping that it would be kind of going by the wayside at this point, but it looks like it's still going strong with this pandemic. It is some crazy stuff. But we, us on planet Earth, us Earthlings, we are holding in there. Yes, so any aliens that may be listening to this, it's time for you to come get us, please, and thank you. Yeah, your your trial is over. We've lasted six mo- over six months now, so let's let's go. Right. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and wrap this on up. Let's wrap it up, please. So for this week's tale. What we shouldn't talk about is going to be killer clowns. Killer clowns. Keith, do you have a fear of clowns yourself? You know what? I used to not, and I didn't understand it for the longest time. And then one day, like a, a switch just flipped. And I'm like, dude, clowns are creepy as all get out. Like, I understand why people are scared of them. You you actually you actually get it? Yeah, it's like it, it's it's kind of creepy. They they're quite creepy. Like I don't I don't do like it used to not phase me at all. But then I was like, like one day I was just like, oh, I get it. Like this, like, I, don't <laughs> I don't know what happened. I wasn't traumatized. It was just one day it was like, yeah, you are scared of clowns. I was like, oh my god, I am. <laughs> You know, it's it's so crazy because, you know, clowns ca- clowns are pretty much like evolved gestures and they're supposed to just bring joy to everyone. And then they 
like transition to more being along the side of bringing joy to children. But a lot of people get freaked out by the clown aesthetic, the freaky, disproportionate that sometimes they wear like those, those hip rings to make themselves really wide and stuff. And then of course like the the hair and the face paint just being unnatural colors. I guess it just freaks people out. Yeah, do you have a clown phobia? I don't. I, I think because like um I've played like being into like video games, like a lot of different like jester and clown related like aesthetics are used in different things. And so I, I kinda I don't like like I don't like it like it, but I like I enjoy how it looks sometimes, you know. And then of course we're like insane clown posse. I only probably know like one of their songs, but I don't I don't think they were ever like, I don't know, that didn't seem scary to me at all. Well, the official technical term is chorophobia. That's severe clowns? Yes. That is very interesting. Very interesting. Now my now my girlfriend, she is a huge it fan a big Stephen King fan in general. And, um, and I don't believe that clowns ever made it to the threshold for her to be be afraid of. Like she's afraid, like, you know, of course she'll be afraid of a Pennywise, but just like a regular run of the mill circus clown. They won't, won't phase her. Yeah. I'm, I would be afraid of the original Pennywise, not the second one. The original Pennywise does look really creepy. Like he does a very just creepy face. They 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 work they worked with what they had and it worked really well. Yeah, maybe the low tech was better for in that situation. Yeah, when you start when you start putting CG in there, like it like it looks great and gruesome and all, but you know, it's not not as lifelike as the original version. Yeah. Well, I guess we have talked about irrational fears enough. Who's going to go first this week? You know what? I think I want to go first. Because I'm not even going to talk about a clown. Mm. This is the one that made a very foolish mistake. Well, that's definitely going against the grain of the theme. <laughs> what can I say? All right, we'll take it away. Well, gather around children, it is time for a tale of crime. Sheila Keen was a repo lady, repossessing cars for Michael Warren's auto dealership Bargains Motors on North Dixie Highway in West Palm Beach. She had been having an affair with him. Sheila, newly separated in 1990 from her husband of three years, was having her rent paid by Michael. The two began taking long lunches together, and then a affair developed. Marlene Warren was the wife of Michael Warren, and she was a threat to Sheila's true happiness. How could she be with Michael if the Mrs. Warren was not her? So she had a plan. Two days before Memorial Day in 1990, Sheila went to a West Palm Beach costume shop and purchased a clown costume, makeup, orange wig, and a red nose. On Memorial Day, Sheila went to a nearby Publix grocery store and bought a bouquet of flowers and two red balloons. Ninety minutes later, a clown holding a bouquet of flowers 
and two balloons rang the doorbell to the Warren residence, where Marlene stopped cooking breakfast to answer the door. The clown offered the flowers and balloon to Marlene, who had a joyous smile on her face, before being shot point blank two times by said clown. Damn. The clown calmly walked back to its white Chrysler LeBaron and left the scene. A neighbor walking his Labrador Retriever heard what sounded like a gun nail, quote, grabbed another neighbor, who happened to be a doctor, and attempted to aid Mrs. Warren until the ambulance arrived. Two days later, Marlene died. Damn, that's sad. Yeah, so we got a repo lady turn clown for a hot second to murder someone. Now, that is a very, very unorthodox way of killing someone. But, I mean, it worked because she was not suspicious. She opened the door. She accepted the gifts. You know, it did not raise her suspicions like another like woman coming and knocking on the door. Right, right. Maybe I she thought it was like saying. one of those like singing telegrams or something. I wonder I wonder if Marlene had anything to do with clowns. Like I wonder if, if Michael ever mentioned her having like a sort of uh, fear of clowns or anything like that to Sheila to go to the costume shop and get this costume. I don't know. Maybe it was just like the best way to hide her face. Just, without... just a regular nude color leg stocking wouldn't do? Yeah. Like that's a good way to completely disguise your face but not draw any like negative attention I guess if somebody sees a clown walking down the street they probably assume they're going to a party or you know something like that they wouldn't really be like hey there's a clown walking down the street let's call the police right 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 very very good uh, observation you made there why thank you my FBI classes are coming along swimmingly they are absolutely paying off they are so, the initial investigation led detectives to identify the suspect as Sheila Keene. However, an arrest was never made. Michael Warren was also a suspect, though he was in prison at the time. Now, as a grievous widower, he would go on to marry Sheila Keene in 2002 in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a couple soon after moved to Tennessee, where they operated a restaurant together. Twelve years go by, and the investigation reopens. Witnesses were recontacted and additional DNA analysis was conducted. Palm Beach County, Washington County, Virginia's Sheriff's Office, U.S. Marshals Task Force, Western District of Virginia, and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation joined efforts for additional resources. As a result of the thorough investigation, Sheila Keene was linked to the murder of Marlene Warren. So, the events take place fairly recently. The case was presented to the grand jury on August 31st, 2017, and a true bill of first-degree murder was issued and an arrest warrant was obtained for Sheila Warren. 27 years after Willington's clown murder occurred, justice will finally be served. Michael Warren was not arrested, but the investigation is still ongoing. Michael has previously served several years in prison after he was convicted of grand theft, racketeering, and odometer tampering while in the used car business. 
She oh looked, my gosh, like Harry Wormwood on Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you gotta you can raise up those prices if you go down a couple miles, right? Right. <laughs> That's pretty jacked up. I would hate to get a car that I thought had fifteen thousand miles on it and it had hundred fifteen thousand miles on it. Oh, that's not funny, but funny. Well, he deserved to go to prison that's for that. quite scandalous, actually. Oh, absolutely. Very shysty. Sheila Keen had a court hearing in Virginia on the morning of September 26, 2017, but waived her right to appeal, and she will sent back to Florida to face charges. In 2019, investigators got a lead from John Morin Jr., to where the getaway vehicle and murder weapon may be. John Morin Jr. received phone calls for bribes that attempted to pay for his silence, but Morin Jr. refused the money and did the right thing by alerting the authorities of the information given to him by his father, who gave the information to Morin Jr. on his deathbed. In the Palm Beach Canal, more than 10 feet underwater lied the vehicle. But it was not a white Chrysler LeBaron, and Legs' second getaway vehicle, a 1982 Audi 4000. John Morton Sr. told his son that this vehicle was full of evidence. Inside of the car, contents found were tube socks, red and blue pieces of cloth, and a shoe sole. When shown the vehicle, Morton Jr. said, quote, it's, it's the wrong car. The detectives need to dive again. Quote. There are no further discoveries at this time. The investigation is still ongoing, and as of now, court events have been delayed to 2021 due to the COVID-19 outbreak. And that's it. Wow. I mean, she went through all that just to marry this guy. And he wasn't even that great of a guy. Like, I don't honestly don't know what the appeal would have been other than him just offering to pay her rent one day. And she was like, so just like mesmerized by it that she just said, you know, I want to be with you. He was like, no, Sheila, it never work. I have a wife. And she's like, I can I can do something about your wife. I know she hates clowns. Well. The only person I feel bad for in this story is Marlene. Is that her name? Yeah, Marlene. Yeah, I feel bad for Marlene. The other two can go suck a rotten egg. That well, is a good insult. <laughs> I've been working on my old school insults. <laughs> Next time, just say good day, sir. That'll do just fine. Well, it would only do fine if it was someone talking to me. Mm. True, 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 true. My, my mistake. Well, I want you to go ahead and brace yourself because my story is a doozy. It's actually one of the most famous serial killers in the U.S., and the fact that you don't know about him, it kind of disturbs me. Now, I may, have, I may know of, of the, the clown's name. I just don't know the, the deets. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to give you all the dirty deets, and trust me, they are dirty and gross, and it's a lot. So, brace yourself, because this this is a wild story. All right, I'm braced. All right, well, this is the story of John Wayne Gacy, a.k.a. Pogo the Clown. So John Wayne Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois, March 17, 1942, the second child and only son of John Stanley and Marion Gacy. I wonder, did they name, wait, was John Wayne a big thing back in the early 40s or was that just a weird coincidence? There may be a weird coincidence, but I also think just the two name structure was pretty popular. Well... His father was an auto repair machinist and a World War I veteran. His mother was a homemaker. As a child, Gacy was overweight and unathletic. He was close to his two sisters and mother, but endured a difficult relationship with his father, who was um, an alcoholic who physically abused his wife and children. Gacy was regularly beaten by his father. His father also belittled him, calling him dumb and stupid and comparing him unfavorably with his sisters. Gacy's mother eventually tried to shield her son from his father's verbal and physical abuse, yet this only resulted in accusations that he was a quote-unquote sissy and a mama's boy who would probably quote-unquote grow up queer. Gacy seldom received his father's approval, later recollecting that no matter what he achieved, he was never good enough in his father's eyes. Despite this, Gacy always denied ever hating his father. In 1949, Gacy's father was informed that his son and another boy had been caught sexually fondling another young girl. His father whipped him with a razor strop as punishment, which is one of those like old school leather razor things. Oh, like the um, that you sharpen. They used to sharpen it. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. I know that hurt. So the same year, a family friend molested Gacy. This individual was a contractor who would take Gacy for rides in his truck and then fondle him. Now, he never told his father about these incidents, afraid that his father would blame him, which, from the sounds of it, he probably would have. Now, because of a heart condition, Gacy was ordered to avoid all sports at school. During the fourth grade, he began to experience blackouts. He was hospitalized on occasion because of these seizures and in 1957 for a burst appendix. He later estimated that between the ages of 14 and 18, he had spent almost a year in the hospital for these episodes and attributed to the decline of his grades and missing school. But his father suspected these episodes were an effort to gain sympathy and attention and openly accused his son of faking the condition as the boy lay in the hospital bed. Although his mother, sisters, and, you know, what few close friends he had never doubted his illness, Gacy's medical condition was never conclusively diagnosed. 
he also took like a serious hit to the head as well when he was younger. Now, at 18, so that would be in 1960, Gacy became involved in politics, working as an assistant precinct captain for a Democratic Party candidate in his neighborhood. The same year of his political involvement began, his father bought him a car. He kept the vehicle's title in his own name until Gacy had finished paying for it. But these monthly payments took several years for him to complete, and his father would confiscate the keys to the vehicle if Gacy did not do as he said, which is why you would never want someone who is hard on you to buy your car. They right. just like it, to have that power over you. It, it may seem like a nice gesture at the time, but it's definitely an underlying reason. Right. Now, on one occasion in 1962, Gacy actually got an extra set of keys made after his father confiscated the original set, which was smart. But in response, his father removed the car's distributor cap from the vehicle, keeping it for three days. So, you know, you youngins that don't know, those old cars that had distributor caps, without that, it wouldn't run. Mm. So, he basically you know, had it debilitated for three days because he was mad about Gacy getting an extra set of keys. Dang. But he did get the distributor cap back, and after that incident, Gacy moved to Nevada and became a mortuary attendant. He only stayed for about three months before returning home to Chicago. In 1964, the Nunn-Bush Shoe Company, which he worked for, transferred him to Springfield, Illinois to work as a salesman and eventually promoted him to manager of his department. In March of that year, he became engaged to Marilyn Myers, who was a co-worker. Now, I know I'm giving a lot of background, but that is because he is, like I said, one of the most infamous serial killers in the U.S. So I want to give all the background that I could give to kind of build up to what he became or okay. what he unleashed because I feel like, you know, people like this are kind of always like this. Mm -hmm. Now, after a six-month courtship, Gacy and Myers married in September 1964. Marilyn's father ended up purchasing three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. Mr. Myers agreed that Gacy would receive... $15,000 per year, which is the equivalent to $115,513 as of 2020, plus a share in the restaurant's profits if he managed them. Now that's a wedding gift. Oh yeah, he found someone good. Yeah, so the couple moved to Waterloo so the Gacy could manage the restaurants. His wife gave birth to a son in February 1966 and a daughter in March of 1967. Gacy later described this period of his life as perfect. His family was growing and prosperous, and he and his father had made amends. He was on the board of directors for Waterloo U.S. Junior Commerce, or Junior Chamber, which is also known as the JCs. so he was still involved in his political aspects. And he was named Outstanding Vice President of the JCs. 
Now, there was also a little, I guess, trap door secret hideaway going on within the JCs of Waterloo because they were involved in wife swapping, prostitution, pornography, and drug use. Oh, that's a whole lot of... Yeah, so Gacy participated in many of these activities and regularly had sex with local prostitutes. Meanwhile, at his restaurant, while he employed teenagers of both sexes, he only socialized with his young male employees. He even opened what he called a club in his basement where his employees could drink alcohol and play pool. Gacy would give many of them alcohol before he made sexual advances. Now, if they rebuffed him, like Mr. Hall brutally rebuffed Cher in Clueless, which is one of my favorite movies. I think we talked about that in the Brittany Murphy episode. Yes, we did. If they rebuffed him, he would claim his advances were either simply a joke or a test of their morals. Now, in August 1967, Gacy committed his first known sex on 15-year-old Donald Voorhees, a son of a fellow J.C. Gacy lured Voorhees to his house with the promise of pornographic films. He got Voorhees drunk, persuaded him to perform oral sex. Now, it didn't say if he did it to the boy or if he got the boy to do it to him but either way there was some unwanted oral sex involved mm-hmm. over the following months Gacy similarly abused other youths including one whom Gacy encouraged to have sex with his own wife before blackmailing the boy into performing oral sex on him now Gacy lied to several teenagers saying that he was commissioned to conduct homosexual experiments in the interest of scientific research and paid them up to $50 each for being test subjects. In March 1968, Voorhees finally told his father that Gacy had sexually assaulted him. Voorhees Sr. immediately informed the police who arrested Gacy and charged him with performing oral sodomy on Voorhees and the attempted assault of 16-year-old Edward Lynch. Gacy vehemently denied the charges and demanded to take a polygraph test, which is bold. Like, if you do something, yeah, because you, and you, you demand did a polygraph it. test, right? <laughs> this request was granted, although the results indicated Gacy was nervous when he denied any wrongdoing in relation to both young men. Now, he publicly denied any wrongdoing and insisted the charges against him were politically motivated. Voorhees Sr. had opposed Gacy's nomination for appointment as the president of the Iowa JCs. Several fellow JCs found Gacy's story credible and rallied to his support. However, on May 10, 1968, Gacy was indicted on the sodomy charge. On November 7, 1968, Gacy pled guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to Voorhees, but not guilty to the charges related to the other youths. 
He claimed Voorhees had offered his sexual services to him and that he had acted out of curiosity. Now, he was convicted of sodomy on December 3rd and sentenced to 10 years in prison to be served at Anamosa State Penitentiary. 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 I don't think there's a sh in there. Mm. Penitentiary. So, that same day, his wife petitioned for a divorce. The court ruled in her favor, and the divorce was finalized September 18, 1969. Gacy never saw his wife or children again. Dang. That's what he gets. Right. But get this. During his incarceration, he acquired the reputation as a model prisoner and was granted parole with 12 months probation in June 18th. 1970 having served only 18 months of his 10 year sentence what <laughs> yes that's crazy within 24 hours of his release Gacy had relocated to Chicago to live with his mother as his father had died on Christmas day 1969 so what like 6 months before he got paroled his father died now, on February 12, 1971, so the next year, Gacy was charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy who claimed he had lured him to, into his car at the Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal, driven him to his home, and attempted to force the boy into sex. The court dismissed the complaint when the boy failed to appear. Now, the Iowa Board of Parole didn't learn about this incident, which did violate the conditions of his parole. And eight months later, in October 1971, Gacy's parole ended. So he didn't even have to do the whole year of parole. They were way too nice on this guy. Right. So the following month, Gacy's record of previous criminal convictions in Iowa were sealed. So, he got away with a lot of stuff after this. Like, oh wait, sealed means like expunged? Sealed means as in, like, you couldn't really get the details of it. Mm. So, there might have been like a record of him being arrested, but nobody would know what for. Wow. And then with him being in jail such a short time, he could like literally say anything and it would be believable. That is crazy. <laughs> okay. Now, in August 1971, he became engaged to Carol Hoff, a divorcee with two young daughters. He and Hoff had dated back uh, when they were in high school and she had been friends with one of his sisters. That year, he also established a part-time construction business called PDM Contractors. Now, PDM stood for Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance. Much of PDM's workforce consisted of high school students and young men. Gacy would often 
proposition his workers for sex or insist on sexual favors in return for acts such as lending his vehicles, financial assistance, or promotions. This guy, oh my god. Right, so he was using this to lure young men into his orbit and then prey on them. Now, in... 1972, January 2nd, Gacy's first known murder occurred. He lured 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal into his car, much like the other young guy said. McCoy was traveling from Michigan to Omaha, Nebraska. Gacy took Timothy on a sightseeing tour of Chicago and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night and be driven back to the station in time to catch the bus. According to Gacy, he claimed the teen tried to attack him sometime during the night, and the altercation ended with Timothy being stabbed repeatedly in the chest. Repeatedly? Repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Now... Prior to Timothy's identification in 2007, he was simply known as the Greyhound bus boy in Gacy's confession. So he didn't even know this this young child's name. He just called him the Greyhound bus boy. That's awful. Finally, DNA actually did, like, discover who he was. Now, a week before his wedding, on June 22, 1972, Gacy was arrested and charged with aggravated sexual battery and reckless conduct. The arrest was in response to a complaint filed by a youth who claimed Gacy had flashed a sheriff's badge, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex. These charges were dropped after the complainant attempted to blackmail Gacy. In 1973, Gacy and a teenage PDM employee traveled to Florida to view property that Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped the employee in their hotel room. After returning to Chicago, the guy drove to Gacy's house and beat him in his front yard. Which, kudos to that man. Kudos to him. That's what he damn gets. Gacy told his wife that he had been attacked for refusing to pay the employee for poor quality work. Now, according to Gacy, the second time he actually committed murder was around January 1974. He strangled a young man and then placed the body in his closet before burial. This victim remains unidentified, unfortunately. So, in between running PDM and attacking and killing young men, in 1975, Gacy joined the Jolly Jokers Clown Club and created his own performance characters. Pogo the Clown, which was his most known, most popular, and Patches the Clown. He performed as Pogo at numerous local parties, political functions, charitable events, and children's hospitals. Now, he appeared as Patches at the grand openings of his PDM client stores, so he used different clowns for different things. Now, he had designed his own clown costumes and taught himself 
how to apply makeup. So at that point, being a clown was like as much of a part of his life as running PDM. Dang. July 1975, Gacy went to the home of 15-year-old Anthony Antonucci, a PDM employee. The two drank a bottle of wine, then Gacy wrestled Anthony to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. One cuff was loose, and Anthony freed his arm while Gacy was out of the room. When Gacy returned, Anthony, who just so happened to be a high school wrestler, wrestled Gacy to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. At first, Gacy threatened Anthony, then he calmed down and promised to leave if he would just remove the handcuffs. Now, Anthony agreed to this, and Gacy left. But one week after the attempted assault of Anthony, 18-year-old John Butkovich, another one of Gacy's employees, disappeared. And that was on July 31st, 1975. Gacy later admitted to encountering Butkovich, then inviting him back to his home. At his home, Gacy offered him a drink, then conned him into allowing his wrists to be cuffed behind his back. He later confessed to having sat on the kid's chest for a while before he strangled him. He stole Budovich's body in his garage, intending to bury the body later in the crawl space. But when his wife and two stepdaughters returned home earlier than expected, he ended up burying this young man's body under the concrete floor of the garage. This was like a part of his his MO, like because everybody knew he was a clown, like he would like, you know, let me let me show you a trick and then like get the handcuffs and be like, oh, here, you see how easy I got out of them? See if you can get out of them. Like that was kind of his MO, like he would use like tricks and stuff like that. The end of 1975, Gacy's marriage had started to deteriorate. He finally told his wife that he was bisexual, and Carol Gacy asked her husband for a divorce. Now, on March 2nd, their divorce was finalized, and Gacy's murder spree really ramps up at this point. One month after his divorce was finalized, he abducted and murdered 18-year-old Darnell Sampson. He was last seen in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy buried him under the dining room floor. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of May 14th, Randall Reffitt, a 15-year-old, disappeared while walking home from Sin High School. Hours after Gacy abducted Reffitt, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton also vanished as he walked home from his sister's apartment. They were buried together in Gacy's crawlspace, and investigators believe both victims were murdered on the same evening. On June 3rd, Gacy killed 17-year-old Lakeview teenager named Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to Waukegan, Illinois. Gacy strangled Bonin with a ligature and buried him under the spare bedroom. 
I really want to know what was going on with the floor so he could just like lift them up. And, and what was the and what was the smell like? Right. He he often lied about the smell, like saying that there was like a sewage leak under the crawl space and that's what was causing the smell. So it's like, you know, people kind of let it go. Like they knew that the house had a bad smell, but he always had a a plumbing issue, according to him. You know, his wife and stepdaughter didn't live there anymore. So there was no one to really, you know, deny what was what he was saying. Ten days later, after Michael Bonin, Gacy murdered 16-year-old William Carroll and buried him in a common grave in the crawl space. July 26, 1976, Gacy picked up 18-year-old hitchhiker David Cram. He offered David a job and a place to stay. On August 21st, David actually moved into Gacy's house. The following day, Gacy, dressed as Pogo the Clown, conned Cram into putting on handcuffs. Cram was drunk and Gacy handcuffed him with his wrists in front of his body. He swung Cram around while holding the chain link of the cuffs and was yelling at him that he intended to rape him. Cram kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself from the handcuffs. Now, a month later, Gacy appeared at Cram's bedroom door again saying that he was going to rape him, saying, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Again, David fought Gacy off, and he soon moved out and left PDM, but he did like still periodically work for Gacy over the following two years. So that... he escaped with his life. That's be so traumatizing. That's insane. Right. And then for him to still like go back and work, I get I don't know if, you know, he was just like in a bad situation and so he like didn't have any any other way to make money, so he had to keep going back. But yeah, I after someone attacked me like that, I would not want to work for them anymore, no matter how bad it got. Now, 16-year-old Minnesota youth named James Hackinson was last known to have phoned his family on August 5th. Gacy murdered and buried him in the crawl space beneath a body of a 17-year-old Bensonville, Illinois youth named Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. On October 24th, Gacy abducted and killed teenage friends Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. The two were last seen outside of a restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. Two days later, a 19-year-old construction worker, William Bundy, disappeared. Gacy buried William's body under his master bedroom floor. In December 1976, another PDM employee 17-year-old Gregory Godzik disappeared. His girlfriend last saw him outside her house after he had driven her home following a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for only three weeks before he disappeared. He had informed his family that Gacy had him dig trenches of some kind for drain tiles in his crawl space. 
So the, first of all, this crawl space must have like spanned the whole like house. Because at this point, he had like five or six people under there already. And he had a employee digging trenches under there. Or what he said were trenches. Now, between 1976, December, and March 1977, it's known that Gacy killed an unidentified adult male. He buried his victim in the crawl space beneath the body of a 20-year-old Michigan native named John Prestige, who had disappeared on March 15th. On January 20th, 1977, Gacy encountered a 19-year-old named John Sizzik. He lured John to his home on the pretext of buying his Plymouth satellite. He later confessed to strangling John in his spare bedroom. Now, Gacy murdered one additional unidentified youth and buried him in the crawl space in the spring or early summer of 1977. The exact time of the murder is unknown. Hey, real quick, do you know what a Plymouth satellite looks like? No, is it cool? Do you want one? It looks pretty cool. Like, it, look, it looks like a Plymouth Cuda. Okay, I don't know what that looks you, like either. You know what the, the Barracuda looks like? Oh, okay. I like, I like that. Yeah, like, that's crazy. So, by, no, on July 5th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Matthew Bowman from Crystal Lake, Illinois. By the end of 1977, Gacy had murdered six more young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of these victims was 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police sergeant. He was also um, found buried in the crawl space. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, 19-year-old former U.S. Marine John Maury disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk to his apartment. Gacy strangled Maury and buried his body beneath the master bedroom. On October 17th, 21-year-old Minnesota native Russell Nelson disappeared. He was last seen outside of a Chicago bar. Gacy murdered him and buried him beneath the guest bedroom. Less than four weeks later, Gacy murdered 16-year-old Kalamazoo, Michigan teenager Robert Winch and buried him in the crawl space. On November 18th, 20-year-old father of one, Tommy Boiling, disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling, on December 9th, another 19-year-old U.S. Marine named David Talsma disappeared after informing his mother he was going to attend a concert in Hammond, Illinois. Gacy strangled Talsma with a ligature and buried him in the crawl space close to the body of John Maury. On December 30th, Gacy abducted 19-year-old student Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. He drove him to his home where he raped, 
tortured, and repeatedly dunked Donnelly's head into a bathtub until he passed out. Gacy taunted him with statements such as, aren't we playing fun games tonight? Donnelly later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in such pain that he asked Gacy to kill him, to which Gacy replied, I'm getting round to it. But after several hours, Gacy just drove Donnelly to his workplace and released him, warning him that if he told the police, they would not believe him. This man is sick. This is, this is so crazy. Now, he, he being Donnelly, did report the assault, and the police questioned Gacy on January 6, 1978, and Gacy admitted to having a quote-unquote sex slave relationship with Donnelly, but insisted everything was consensual and added that he didn't pay the kid the money he had promised him. The police believed him and filed no charges. Damn. And I definitely think a lot of that was like due to the homosexual nature of the crime. Right, right. Because, I mean, this is the late 70s. It, it was not something... It was, it was pretty frowned upon. Right. And then the fact that he was just like, yeah, we did. And that was, you know, over money. The cops were probably like, okay, yeah, it's like, who would admit this? You know, like, kind of that kind of mindset. Yeah. So, the following month, Gacy killed 19-year-old William Kendrick. William had disappeared on February 16th. Kendrick was the final victim that Gacy buried in his crawl space. On March 21st, Gacy lured 26-year-old Jeffrey Ringnall into his car. On entering the car, Gacy chloroformed the young man and drove him to the house on Somerdale, where his arms and head were restrained in a pillory device affixed to the ceiling. So, a pillory device is like one of those medieval torture devices where your head goes in the middle and then your hand is on each side. You know, yeah. they, they like throw tomatoes at you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. on the ceiling? Yeah, he had it like affixed to the ceiling. How strong was this guy? He he had to have been pretty strong. Or maybe it was like on a thing like that extended down from the ceiling instead of like coming up from the floor. Oh, yeah, okay. And he kind of like pulls him up through the, the pulley yeah. system. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, Gacy raped and tortured Rignall with various instruments, including lit candles and whips, and repeatedly chloroformed him into unconsciousness. But he eventually drove Rignall to Chicago's Lincoln Park, where he was dumped unconscious but still alive. Rignall managed to stagger to his girlfriend's apartment and police were informed of the assault but didn't investigate Gacy. And again, I think it had to do with them having such a negative 
like opinion of the homosexual lifestyle even though this boy was clearly not I think the fact that like he said a man had attacked and raped him they they were just like uh yeah okay that's that's the most fucked up thing right now eventually the crawl space had no more room for bodies Gacy later confessed to the police that he considered stowing bodies in his attic initially, but had worried about complications arising from leakage. Therefore, he chose to dispose of his victims off the I-55 bridge into the De Plains River. Gacy stated he had thrown five bodies into the river in 1978, and he believed that one landed on a passing barge. Now, only four of those victims were ever found. The first known victim thrown from the I-55 bridge was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke. Gacy killed him in mid-June after he had left his Dover Street apartment to purchase cigarettes. On November 4th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Frank Landingen. His body was found in the De Plains River in Shahannon, Illinois, on November 12th. On November 24th, 20-year-old Elmwood Park, Illinois resident James Mazzara disappeared after Thanksgiving with his family, which that was sad. That is sad. On the afternoon of December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited the Nissen Pharmacy in De Plains, Illinois, to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the store owner, Phil Torf. While he was within earshot of a 15-year-old part-time employee named Robert Peast, Gacy mentioned that his firm often hired teenage boys at a starting wage of $5 per hour which was almost double the pay that Peace earned at the pharmacy. Shortly after Gacy left the pharmacy, Peace's mother arrived at the store to drive her son home so the family could celebrate her birthday together. Now, he asked his mother to wait, adding that some contractor wanted to talk to him about a job. PM promising to return shortly. However, Peace was murdered shortly after 10 p.m. at Gacy's home. When he failed to return, his family filed a missing persons report with the De Plains police. Torf, the pharmacy owner, named Gacy as the contractor that Peace had most likely left the store to talk to about a job. Lieutenant Joseph Kozenzak whose son attended Miss Wayne Maine West High School, like Peace did, chose to investigate Gacy further. Thank goodness, because everybody else was letting this slide. Mm. Having spoken with Peace's mother on the morning of December 12th, Kozenzak became convinced that Peace had not run away from home. A routine check of Gacy's criminal background revealed that he had an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago and had served a prison sentence in Iowa 
for sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. So his record wasn't even, like, completely sealed. No, it seemed like it. So anybody who had done, like, just the most basic check, like this investigator did, would have found this out years ago. Wow. They could have stopped so much from happening. They really could have. So Kozenzak and two Deplane police visited Gacy at his home the following evening. Gacy indicated he had seen two young kids working at the pharmacy and he had asked one of them, whom he believed to be Peace, whether there were any remodeling materials behind the store. He was adamant, however, he had never offered either one a job and had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after 8 p.m. as he had left his appointment book at the store. Gacy promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement confirming this, indicating he was unable to do so at the moment because his uncle had just died. When questioned as to how soon he could come to the police station, he responded, quote, you guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? Like this guy. Okay, guy. Okay. At 3.20 a.m., Gacy arrived at the police station covered in mud, claiming he had been involved in a car accident. On returning to the police station later that day, he again denied any involvement in Peace's disappearance and repeated that he had not offered him a job. When he was asked why he returned to the pharmacy, he reiterated that he had done so in response to a phone call from Torf informing him he had left his appointment book at the store. Now, a detective had already spoke with Mr. Torf, who denied calling Gacy. At the request of the detectives, Gacy prepared a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. Suspecting Gacy might be holding peace against his will at his home, the Plain Police obtained a warrant to search Gacy's house on December 13th. This search of Gacy's property revealed several suspicious items, including several police badges, a 6mm Bevatata starter pistol inside of an office drawer, and a syringe and hypodermic needle inside of a cabinet in Gacy's bathroom. Investigators also found handcuffs, books on homosexuality, and pedastry, which is sexual activity involving a man and a boy, seven pornographic films, capsules of amyl nitrate, which is a synthetic liquid used medicinally as a vasodilator. And a vasodilator is a medication that opens or dilates blood vessels. They affect the muscles in the walls of your arteries and veins, preventing the muscles from tightening and the walls from narrowing. So you can imagine what he used that for. Yeah. And there was also an 18-inch dildo in Gacy's bedroom. A 39-inch 2x4 with holes drilled into each end bottles of Valium and Atropine and several driver's license were found in one of the bedrooms. 
there was also a blue hooded parka found atop a toolbox inside the laundry room and underwear too small to fit Gacy was located inside a bathroom closet. In the Northwest bedroom, investigators found a main West high school ring, but the ring was not pieces. The ring was a class of 1975 ring engaged with the initials JAS. The investigators also recovered a photo receipt from Nissen Pharmacy from a trash can alongside a 36-inch section of nylon rope. Now, police assigned two two-man surveillance teams to monitor Gacy on a rotational 12-hour basis as they continued their investigation into his background and any potential involvement in Peace's disappearance. By December 16th, Gacy was becoming affable with the surveillance detectives, regularly inviting them to join him for meals in the restaurants and occasionally for drinks in bars or at his home. Uh, I guess if you can't beat him, join him. This dude, I, right. I just can't believe this guy. He repeatedly denied he had anything to do with Peace's disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections or because of his recreational drug use. By December 18th, so we're only like five days into the surveillance, Gacy was beginning to show visible signs of strain from the constant surveillance. He was unshaven, he looked tired, he appeared anxious, and was drinking heavily. That afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office to prepare a $750,000 civil lawsuit against the Plain police, demanding that they cease their surveillance. At the same time, the serial number of the Nissan photo pharmacy receipt was found that was found in uh, Gacy's kitchen trash was traced to 17-year-old Kim Byers, a co-worker of Peace at Nissan Pharmacy. Byers admitted when contacted um, in person the following day that she had worn that blue jacket on December 11th to shield her from the cold. She had placed the receipt in the pocket just before she gave the coat to Peace as he left the store, claiming that a contractor wanted to speak to him. This revelation contradicted Gacy's previous statements that he had no contact with Robert Peace on the evening of December 11th. So if it was not for her wearing his jacket and putting that receipt in there, they probably would not have been able to connect the dots all the way. Wow, just imagine that. Just right. probably like a receipt into your pocket can mean, like, oh, man. Right, the difference between your friend's murderer going free or not. Now, on the evening of December 20th, Gacy arrived at his lawyer's office in Park Ridge, Illinois. He happened to pick up a copy of the Daily Herald from Sam Amorite's desk, and that was his attorney, and he pointed to the front page article covering the disappearance of Robert Peace and said, quote, 
this boy is dead. He's in a river. Over the following hours, Gacy gave a rambling confession that ran into the early hours of the following morning. He began by informing Amorite and Stevens he had, quote, been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people. And that now he wanted to be the same for himself. He said he buried most of his victims in his crawl space and had disposed of five other bodies in the De Plains River. Gacy dismissed his victims as male prostitutes or hustlers or liars with whom he gave the rope trick and he occasionally awoke to find dead, strangled kids on his floor with their hands cuffed behind their back. So he buried them in his crawl space as he believed they were his property. Sick, sick man. Very, extremely. And then the rope trick is what he called another one of his ploys to get, like, to strangle these young boys, like, after he had them cuffed or when he was trying to debilitate them. Like, he had, like, that weird name for it. So he was just, just the worst. Gacy got drunk and fell asleep midway through his confession. Now, his lawyer, Amorite, immediately arranged a psychiatric appointment for Gacy at 9 a.m. that morning. But when he woke up several hours later, Gacy, Gacy simply shook his head when informed by Amorite that he had confessed to killing approximately 30 people, saying, well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do. Ignoring his lawyer's advice regarding his scheduled appointment, Gacy left their office to attend the needs of his business. Armed with the search warrant, police and evidence technicians drove to Gacy's home on December 21st, 1978. Within minutes of digging, they had uncovered putrefied flesh and a human arm bone. For the next four months, not four days, four months, more and more human remains emerged from the house as reporters, TV news crews, and astonished onlookers just watched. Twenty-nine bodies were found in Gacy's crawl space and on his property between December 1978 and March 1979. Eight of the victims were so badly decomposed that they were never identified. On February 6, 1980, Gacy's trial began in Chicago. During the trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Gacy's lawyer, Sam Amorite, said that Gacy had moments of temporary at the time of each individual murder, but regained his sanity before and after to lure and dispose of victims. <laughs> Laura's like, I'm not going to try this game. Right, like, like, he should have known, like, okay, so he's only crazy in little spurts. Like, mm -hmm. before, he's good. Then something happens and he's insane. But then right after, he's good again. 
Man. I feel like I feel like he just wanted him to get convicted because that's a horrible, horrible defense. Oh yeah, absolutely. So this plea was just outright rejected. And Gacy joked that the only thing he was guilty of was quote, running a cemetery without a license. Wow. Some sense of humor this guy has. Right, he is just the absolute worst. Now, he was found guilty on March 13th and sentenced to death. During his 14 years on death row, Gacy took up oil painting with his favorite subjects being portraits of clowns, which is, like, ultra creepy. Yeah. He said he used his clown act as an alter ego, saying that a clown can get away with murder. His other paintings included pictures of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and fellow serial killers Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Gein. They are among the most famous examples of serial killer art. Many of his paintings were sold at auction after his execution. 19 were put up for sale, prices ranging from $195 for an acrylic painting of a bird to $9,500 for a depiction of dwarfs playing baseball against the Chicago Cubs. Wow. Some bought Gacy's paintings to destroy them. A bonfire in Naperville, Illinois in June 1994 was attended by 300 people, including family, family members of nine victims who watched 25 of the paintings burn. Nice. That's real nice. Now, the privately owned National Museum of Crime and Punishment exhibits two of Gacy's paintings, including Baseball Hall of Fame, signed by 46 members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, including Duke Snyder, Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, who's like your mom's personal favorite, Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, Sidney Co- Sandy Koufax, Yogi Berra, and Roy Campanella. President Nixon also signed the work. But all the signers were unaware that Gacy was the artist. So it's like somebody got them to sign it under false pretenses and then like haha I tricked you this is serial killer art. Real quick, you said Joe DiMaggio is my mom's favorite? Yeah, she has a thing for Joe DiMaggio. Interesting. You should ask her about it. Alright. You don't remember our dog Jojo? His his full name was Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> Wow, no, I didn't. I didn't know that. <laughs> so, on May 10th, 1994, Gacy was executed at Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, by lethal injection. His last meal consisted of a dozen deep fried shrimp, a bucket of original recipe chicken from KFC, a pound of fresh strawberries, and french fries. According to reports, Gacy did not express any remorse. His last words to his lawyer in his cell were to the effect that killing him would not bring anyone back. And it's reported his last words were, quote, kiss my ass, 
which he said to a correctional officer while being sent to the execution chamber. Would you just imagine him with a very sassy gay voice? Kiss my ass. (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining him as a bag of discarded scrotal hairs. (laughs) That's what I imagine him as. (laughs) That's very descriptive. Great. He is a pure piece of trash. Eight people, eight young men died and nobody knows who they are. Like eight families are missing children and have no idea that they were victims of this man. It sounds definitely sounds like a awful villainous person. I can't believe he was able to get so many victims. I hate that. Right. I mean like it's reported that he had thirty three in total. And they were able to, like, you know, identify everyone for the most part. But I just, I feel terrible for all 33 of them. But especially terrible for those eight that, you know, they just don't know who they are. They can't even, like, get them, their little bit of remains back to their families. So, he is terrible. He's not the reason that I hate clowns. But, like... I would give a clown a side eye at this point. And also, um, KFC, I'm looking at you. Well, I mean, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not a fault. Like, uh, his father-in-law was just super nice to him and gave him all that junk for managing KFCs and... I guess that's what you do when you own KFC. You eat fried chicken all day and the potato wedges. Yeah, I mean, it, he must have loved it enough to make it his last meal. Like a whole bucket, though. Blech. I definitely would have did, did the shrimp thing. I would have did that for sure. Yeah, this, uh, that's interesting. Like, I don't think they do that anymore. Like, now they just get whatever they have, like, for chow that day but also they don't really execute people like they used to like you know people don't get executed off death row as fast as they used to Mm -hmm. but that was my story of John Wayne Gacy the killer clown and I hope with all of my being that he is rotting in hell. Thanks, Key. I hated it. Now I am in the know of John Wayne Gacy. Well, I know what it's all about. He was also one of the serial killers in that Time Life book that I used to read when I was younger. That'd be a hard read right there. No, it was very interesting. That's that's why Graham had to continuously hide it from me. Like mm-hmm. I I was just super some interested foul, in stories. Some foul imagery there. Yeah, it was. But uh, the house that he did all this in was eventually demolished and another house was like built in its place. I don't think I would live there. 
but I think it was like just recently on the market. So, Key, how do you think you're gonna bring this up? Okay, so yesterday we had your mom's birthday dinner. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my big sister on her fabulous 50. And our newest nephew, Price, Price. had on the most adorable blue jeans that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> really? Like Price is only one month old, and he was like rocking these little jeans, and it was hilarious. It was so hilarious. Like, who even Ooh. makes jeans for newborns? I don't know, but it's the best thing ever. Yeah, little, little baby clothes is really cute. But I bet, I bet it was adorable on them. It was, because it was just so unexpected. Like, you know, you expect to see newborns and, like, you know, sleepers and soft clothes. But, no, he had on full blue jeans with pockets on the back. Mm-hmm. Like, he was dressed to the nines. <laughs> and I loved every minute of it. And he's also super ticklish. Like, if you rub the bottom of his feet, and he was just, like, grinning, like, ear to ear, all his gums showing. And it was just... He's the best. <laughs> That's great. So do you well, have anything? I'm really happy that it is October and fall season will start. We will start seeing lower trends of warm weather. Oh. Yeah. And temperatures in uh in South Carolina. It should be should be worldwide also, but you know, th- this is where it's affecting me currently. Yeah, it's actually been been like really kind of okay. To me, sixties is chilly, so it's been really chilly to me. Uh the the only thing is like just heating up the car in the morning, and then like the low tire pressure sensor going off. That's oh, like, yeah. th- those I'm, are the only things that are affecting me. I don't have those kind of problems. I work from home. Oh, look at you! But you have in your car that would be like, hey, you got seventeen pounds per. You know, of, of tire pressure, you need to uh, get on it. Yeah, luckily, I don't get off until 4 o'clock, so my tires have repressurized by the end. <laughs> also, I want some cheese Doritos, nacho cheese Doritos, but that was very random. I was just thinking about that. You know, in more effort to bring it I, up. You know what I miss? There was this, um, there was this wave of third degree, first degree, second degree burned Doritos. I loved them so much because not only were they, you know, really spicy, they had such a good flavor. I think the third degree burned ones were just, they were just amazing. I don't know what they did to them, but man, those things were just off the chain. I love them. It must have been a gimmick like those uh, Doritos roulette are fun i do i do miss those also those are pretty cool because i like i like having like regular spicy natural doritos but then if i can just get one that's a really hot one it's like ah like it's changing flipping up for me and they taste real good too yeah i like those those are good but i just really want some regular old nacho cheese doritos and a sandwich a sandwich yes so maybe that that should be my endeavor for the rest of the evening to go scout those products. There you go. Well, now that we have that horrible story 
in your horrible story, like at least she wasn't a serial killer. She just killed one innocent lady for no reason. She got caught super fast too. Right. Thank well, goodness. Well, actually, well, no, 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 no. It was like twelve years, but yeah, yeah, I take that back. But I guess week one of our Halloween stories has come to an end. Yeah, we should talk about Halloween. Shout out to our dedicated listeners, our friends, family, our close ones, all the members on our Facebook page. Yes, Facebook page. That really keeps me going. Like the I post the most random stuff that I find funny in the middle of the night, and people really dig it. So good, I love it. There are good memes on there, and it is always like worrying when I see like a, a 1 or 2 a.m. notification that says, key posted to we shouldn't talk about this. I'm like, oh, geez, did I miss something? And then it's like, boom, just a meme. Yes, that's what you're going to get from me at 1 or 2 in the morning. But also shout out to our listeners in Australia, Denmark, Germany, New Zealand, and Poland. Thank you guys for joining us. We hope that we have you back. You know, UK, Canada, And, of course, the U.S. are always rocking with us. We love you guys as well. And we appreciate it. The Instagram is WSTAT underscore pod. That is also the Twitter. And we shouldn't talk about this podcast group on Facebook. And we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. If you want to email us, tell us you love us. Tell us you hate us. Tell us a story you want us to tell. Yes, thank you so much, everyone. I hope you all are staying safe out there. It is finally fall, finally autumn. Let's enjoy it. And with that being said, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.